The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Hello, Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson. This episode, we have Dr. Sam Waldron as our special guest to help us explore the subject of all millennialism. Dr. Sam Waldron is the president of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary and a professor of systematic theology. He's also one of the pastors of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Owensboro, Kentucky. Dr. Waldron received his bachelor from Cornerstone University, his MDiv from Trinity Ministerial Academy, a THM from Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and his PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. From 1977 to 2001, he was a pastor of the Reformed Baptist Church of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Sam Waldron is the author of numerous books, including a modern exposition of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, The End Times Made Simple, Baptist Roots in America, To Be Continued, and MacArthur's Millennial Manifesto, A Friendly Response. Dr. Waldron, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, brother. It's good to be with you, and thank you for this opportunity to talk about this important subject. So, Dr. Waldron, I'm going to ask the first question. What is eschatology, and why should Christians care about it? Sure. Eschatology simply means the doctrine of last things. And uh, uh, I think uh, that leads me right into the reason why eschatology is important. And, and that is that eschatology deals with the end of the biblical story. Fundamentally, though, the Bible teaches both doctrine and ethics and contains both a doctrinal and ethical system, Fundamentally, the Bible is uh, a history. It is uh, a book of the book of redemptive history, and therefore it is a story, a true story. But uh, as in every story, everything depends on the way the story ends. And the doctrine of last things is important because it talks about the way the biblical story ends. Dr. Waldron, what is amillennialism, and how is it different than other common views, and what convinced you of its truthfulness? Oh, those are great questions. First of all, let me say that, uh, uh, get into this by saying that I think we have to make a distinction between things that are central uh, orthodoxy and uh, uh, essentials to the Christian religion that are a part of eschatology. And then things that are, while important, still more secondary and uh, consistent even um, uh, with, with some air, uh, consistent with being a Christian. This is the way I always start, because I want people to know that uh, there are, there's a difference between the central orthodoxy of biblical eschatology and some important but a little bit more secondary questions that Christians can de- disagree about and still be Christians. And uh, and so it, it, in that light, uh, I want to say that it's clear both logically and scripturally and historically from the great creeds of the church that uh, the central orthodoxy with which eschatology deals is uh, the second coming of Christ visible, physical, and glory, uh, the uh, resurrection of the dead, and the day of judgment. Uh, those things have always been uh, a necessary part of Christian orthodoxy. Um, the differences among Christians uh, begin uh, not by disagreement about those basic things, but about how they relate to things like a future tribulation or the millennium. And so uh, I always love, I want always say when I'm teaching this in different places that there are four orthodox systems that I think may lay claim to the allegiance of many genuine Christians, and those four orthodox systems are dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, 
and post-millennialism. Now, <clears throat> um, uh, when I say that all of those systems are orthodox systems, of course, I don't mean they're all equally correct or equally biblical. I don't believe that. But what I'm saying is all of them hold the great orthodox essentials, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the general judgment. And so when I talk about eschatology, I like to begin by making those things clear and making it clear that if we're talking about the disagreements among those four systems, that we're talking about disagreements among Christians and a conversation that must be uh, must be must reflect the flat fact that we're talking with other Christians and must treat them as we should everybody, but especially Christians with courtesy, respect, and Christian love. <clears throat> so when I when I talk about uh, when we come to amillennialism, we're talking about one of four major uh, uh, systems that have been held by Christians, and um, um, and I, I guess the best way to uh, uh, talk about it is to say that uh, amillennialism is first of all not premillennial. Two of the systems, dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism hold that after the second coming of Christ, there is a future millennium. Um, and two of the systems that I've just talked about, amillennialism and postmillennialism, hold that uh, there is no such millennium after the second coming of Christ. Uh, and amillennialism uh, is one, one of the two systems that uh, rejects the notion of a future millennium after the second coming of Christ, uh, supposedly described in Revelation 20. Now, what's the difference then between amillennialism and postmillennialism? Well, this may be confusing a little bit to some of your hearers, but uh, we have to begin by saying that in a certain way, both amillennialism and postmillennialism are postmillennial. That is to say, both those two systems believe that Christ is coming back after the millennium described in Revelation 20. Uh, the difference between the two systems is that postmillennialism uh, does continue to be a, a, a millennial or kiliastic system because it holds that there will be a great golden age of righteousness, peace, and prosperity on earth before the second coming of Christ. Amillennialism, while it certainly asserts that there are the thousand years of Revelation 20 are real, does not believe that it is a millennium in uh, one of the connotations of the word millennium, that is a great golden age of righteousness, peace, and prosperity. So it holds that uh, the whole uh, of the period of the between the first and second advents of Christ are the millennium. It, it rejects systematic postmillennialism, which ordinarily teaches that there is a transition someplace in time between the first and second advents of Christ in which uh, 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 the millennium uh, takes over earth and there's a great golden age of righteousness, peace, and prosperity in which the church is triumphant. It rejects that notion. So what then convinced you of amillennialism? <clears throat> yeah, that's that's a great... Uh, that's a great question. I, I think I have to answer the three things that I talk about in my book, End Times Made Simple, with regard to structural considerations. That is to say, the things in the Bible, the major biblical concepts in the Bible that, le that help us to choose among the four orthodox systems. And those four things are, those three things are, uh, first of all, the two ages, uh, then the general judgment, and then the biblical doctrine of the coming of the kingdom. The two ages, uh, I think uh, the key passage there is Luke chapter 20, although many, many other passages of Scripture describe the two ages. Um, but in Luke chapter 20, and it may be good if we just read that text, um, there is, there, there's key information given which I think is crucial Eschatologically, in fact, I sometimes say 
just to mess with people's minds, that I base my eschatology not on Revelation 20, but on Luke 20. <laughs> so uh, in Luke 20, verses 34 to 36, we read, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, uh, what this passage teaches can be confirmed by the uh, uh, 15, 16, or 17 other passages that speak about the two ages in the New Testament and other parallel passages. But basically, Jesus uh, here gives us a real easy schema to understand how the Bible looks at redemptive history. It sees two ages, not three, four, five, six, seven, or 21. Uh, There's this age and the age to come, or what is called in this passage, that age and the resurrection from the dead. And it says that uh, those two ages are uh, contrast with each other in at least four different ways. Verse 34 tells us, that this that in this age you have marriage and giving in marriage, and the in the age to come there is no marriage. Verse thirty-five. Uh, and this passage tells us that uh, in this age you have death and dying. That in the age to come there is no death and dying. Uh, and um, in this age you have uh, ordinary men, uh, natural men, we might say. But in the age to come uh, there is. Uh, there are only resurrected men because to attain to that age is to attain to the resurrection from the dead. It is to be a son of the resurrection. And lastly, in this age, you have good and evil men mixed up together on earth, whereas in the age to come, uh, we read that they are sons of God and that it's only those who are considered worthy who attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. So it's this doctrine of the two ages that, to me, begins the argument and is so telling in the argument against every form of premillennialism, because every form of premillennialism has to contradict what Jesus says here in in, uh, many different respects, because they have to teach that that the thousand years of Revelation 20, in which there are both good and evil men, and men who die, and men apparently who marry, according to all premillennialists, and all these things uh, after Jesus comes back. But uh, this age, uh, since uh, uh, and the age to come, are separated by the second coming of Christ. Uh, it is at the second coming of Christ that, according to the pervasive teaching of the New Testament, the resurrection occurs, and therefore, uh, the, the period at which the age to come uh, is brought in. Well, there's no room in the age to come, as is described in this passage, for anything like the situation uh, that's described in the thousand years of Revelation 20 and the little season that follows. So uh, that's, that's, where I, that's where I would begin my argument. Dr. Waldron, um Probably one of the main questions that I've run into, at least with people asking, is what is the relationship between Israel and the church according to the amillennial view and probably more broadly just a covenantal view of the Bible? Sure. Well, um, here uh, we have to go. Let me go back to the four systems that I, I kind of delineated in previous statement. In a previous statement, those four systems uh, uh, were dispensationalism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Uh, three, of those, three of those systems, the last three mentioned, all hold that the church is the new and true Israel of God. Only dispensationalism holds that God has two distinct peoples, two separate peoples, Israel and the church. And so, uh, and, and covenant theology then is the backbone of the, of the three other, the three systems, historic pre-millennialism, amillennialism, and post-millennialism. Um, and so, yeah, uh, covenant theology uh, is in, in a certain sense at the basis of amillennialism, 
or at least a component of it, because uh, we hold that uh, there's no need for a future millennium in which God's going to fulfill all his promises to Israel, because he is fulfilling his promises to Israel in the church, which is the new and true Israel of God. So uh, in a passage, and, and where does the Bible, te- New Testament teach this? Oh, about everywhere. But uh, three key passages are Galatians 3.29, which which teaches that uh, if we belong to Christ, we are the seed of Abraham, therefore Israel. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, which says that the Gentile Christians have now been made nigh, brought near, Ephesians 2.12 and 13, to the commonwealth of Israel, and verses 18 and 19 are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints, and the implication uh, of that that statement in the context of that passage is that they're fellow citizens in Israel. They're part of the commonwealth of Israel. They're no longer like the Gentiles that lived in the land in the Old Testament that could live there but weren't a part of Israel and couldn't enter the assembly. Uh, no, they're not strangers and aliens. Now they're fellow citizens. So Galatians 3.29, Ephesians 2.11-19, and then uh, a passage that was really uh, probably the most, uh, the passage that was most striking to me early on as I began to read the Bible for myself in my college years is Romans eleven sixteen to 24, which teaches that what happened when Jesus came was not that there was a second olive tree or a fig tree planted, but the same old olive tree continued, but the unbelieving Jewish branches were broken off and the believing Gentile branches were grafted in. Uh, What's significant about that, of course, is that the imagery of the olive tree and its root in the Old Testament speaks of Israel. And And Paul, the apostle there, is teaching very clearly then that the church is the one olive tree, of that it is the continuation and reformation of Israel. It is the continuing and reformed Israel, and therefore the new Israel of God. So many other passages, Romans 2, Galatians 6.16, many other passages are relevant here. But those are the uh, the passages I like to point to that are key in understanding that the church is the new and true Israel of God. Understanding uh, those four historic systems that you mentioned, uh, you mentioned dispensational premillennialism separates Israel and the church. How would you respond to someone that would ac- uh, accuse uh, an all-millennialist of being of God being unfaithful to the promises of Israel? I know you kind of hit on it in the last question. Yeah, yeah. Can you flush it out a little more? Oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, because that is that is the accusation that we're we're teaching that we're teaching. Uh, uh, well, we're teaching that God doesn't keep His promises and. They've given a name to that. Uh, they've called it uh, replacement theology, and they've called it supersessionism. I was sitting in a doctrinal seminar at, at uh, Southern Seminary once, and they started talking about replacement theology and, and supersessionism. I didn't know what they were talking about, never heard the terminology before. And then I realized they were talking about me. <laughs> so I was, I, was, I was kind of surprised, and I thought, I don't believe that the church supersedes Israel, and I don't believe the church replaces Israel. I believe the church is Israel, um, and that and that in the church, God has, uh, and I think we can say it in a certain sense, seriously and literally fulfilled his promises to Israel. Um, and I said, what, what re- really is necessary here is, is uh, to go to the key passage which actually discusses this issue in the New Testament, and it's one of the major sections of Romans, Romans 9 to 11. Because there, Paul takes up the very issue uh, that the dispensationalists are raising here. Has God, uh, has God broken his word to Israel? Has God failed to keep his word to Israel? And Paul's response there is remarkable, and I think uh, uh, should put to, put to bed forever uh, this this notion that if uh, that God isn't keeping His promises to Israel, and Paul really says three things in Romans nine, ten, and eleven in response to that 
of that accusation that the word of God has failed and God hasn't kept his promises to Israel. The first one is that uh, God never promised that all Israelites would be saved head for head. He never promised that. And Paul says that they are, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Uh, so God doesn't have to save all Israelites in order to us uh, to keep his promises because he never promised to save all Israelites. He promised, um, he promised uh, and made clear in the Old Testament itself in the distinction between Ishmael and Isaac and in the distinction between um, Jacob and Esau that uh, his promises pertain to the elect among Israel and not to every Israelite head for head. The second thing he says at the end of Romans 9 and through Romans 10 is that these promises to Israel were not unconditional. Uh, They were not unconditional in the sense that uh, they required faith in the promises of God. They required the Israelites to subordinate themselves to the promises of God and to the righteousness of God. And so when God made promises to Israel, it wasn't as though those promises were unconditional in the sense that there, there was no response necessary. No, there was a response that was necessary. The gospel had to be received. The gospel had to be believed. And, and, and so uh, God is under no obligation, Paul is, going, Paul is saying in Romans 10, uh, to uh, save those Israelites that reject Christ and the gospel, and he won't. But then in Romans 11, Paul comes on to, to say a third thing with regard to this notion of, of God's word to Israel failing. And he says, um, uh, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And here Paul literally says, God hasn't, God hasn't rejected his people. Uh, he, is, he has not been unfaithful to his promises to Israel because I'm saved and I'm a Jew. And then he goes on to open up uh, the whole, a whole idea of the elect remnant and, and goes on to say, after the illustration from the period of Elijah the prophet, that uh, in the same way, there's also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And so Paul's response in Romans 11 to the notion that God's word to Israel has failed is that God is keeping his promises to Israel in the salvation of the remnant. What has to be understood here is that the way that the dispensationalists think of the church is just wrong. They think of the church as Gentile, but the church is not Gentile. The the church has a, a Jewish mediator. The foundation stones of the church are all Jewish, all the apostles, and and, and an elect remnant of Jews is the core of the church, uh, and and uh, not all uh, Jewish branches were broken off. Many of those Jewish branches believed in Christ and continued as part of the one olive tree. And so uh, the church is not a Gentile institution. It's a Jewish institution, and in the church, God is literally keeping his promises to Israel. But the assumption that those promises require uh, that, the, that the mass of Israel be saved and be saved regardless of whether they receive Christ and, and, and uh, is, is just wrong because the promises to Israel never said those things. Hmm. The next question particularly talks about Revelation 20. One of the objections that dispensationalist or or even historic premillennialist will bring up is is the nature of Satan's binding during the millennial reign. Right. So what would you say the nature sure. of Satan's binding is for the amillennialist or, or how do you believe the Bible actually portrays it? Yeah. Well uh, yeah great question uh needs to be approached real uh carefully with a view to biblical hermeneutics. Um, so, so let me approach it that way. Um, uh, Revelation 20 is apocalyptic language, primarily. Some, uh, some uh, literal statements sprinkled in, like who is the devil and Satan, that help us identify what the figures are in the great... Uh, uh, allegorical or 
apocalyptic drama that's being described when we're told in verse 2 that the angel laid hold of the dragon and bound him for a thousand years. But we have to understand that this is, this is uh, apocalyptic or figurative language. And, and, and that being the case, as apocalyptic or figurative language, there are a number of special rules of hermeneutics that apply to its interpretation. Um, one of those, one of those rules is that, uh, we, ha we have to remember that we can't, we can't take this language and drag it into the real world wholesale. Um, this this uh, this description here is prophetic, apocalyptic, and figurative. It is a vision being seen in the mind of of the apostle, who was also a prophet in this case. And this uh, and and so when we when we look at the we hear see the description of the dragon, the serpent of old, for instance, in verse two. Uh, I'm going to say something that may shock, but it, I I think we have to say it. That, dra that dragon that he saw, the serpent of old, literally does not exist any place in the space-time universe, and never has. That it, it is figurative language that, and it is a vision that exists in the mind of the uh, uh, of the of the prophet. It's a dark saying. It's a vision. It's a dream. It has to come through the gate of translation. Uh, before we understand what it means in the real world where we live. In the real world, there's no dragon and there's no serpent. There's the devil and Satan. Uh, and so I think that that we have to begin with appreciating that this is figurative language that has to be brought through the gate of translation and, and, may, and, may, and, ca and can't be absolutized and universalized uh, in in exactly the way the premillennialists do. Second thing that that is important hermeneutically in interpreting this language is uh, we have to interpret it in terms of biblical context. Uh, we have to interpret the figurative in light of the clear. We have to interpret the, uh, the symbols of prophetic, figurative, apocalyptic language in terms of their meaning elsewhere in the Bible. And so we have to take the literal before the figurative. And when we do that, here's what we discover. Um, it, there are seven other passages in the New Testament that speak of, of the events of the first advent of Christ, his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection as exerting uh, a, a, an, a, an impact on Satan that destroyed his power over the world. Uh, the passages are Matthew 12, 28 and 29, Luke 10, John 12, um, uh, uh, Colossians 2 or 3, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 2, 1 John 3, and Revelation 12. And all of them speak of the fact that through the events of Christ's first advent, uh, the strong man was bound and, and, uh, and, and Christ is able to spoil his possessions. The very language used in Matthew 12 contains some of the same roots as you have here in Revelation 20, verse 2. The, the root bound is the same in Matthew 12, 28 and 29 as it is in Revelation 20 and verse 2. So um, what I do, and here's what I say when I expound the passage, I, I lay out the fact that we've got to, allow the literal uh, context of the Bible to interpret figurative language like this. And I, and I show that every place else where a binding of Satan or something like it is described, it's related to the events of Christ's first advent. And then I say something like this. Uh, so I, I pretend I'm a premillennialist and say, well, why haven't you turned us to all the passages that say there's an interim, a binding of Satan at Christ's second coming? And my response is, there aren't any. <laughs> If there's an interim second binding of Satan at Christ's second coming, if there if there is such a thing, it's not talked about any place else in the Bible. It is exclusively talked about here. Of course, you see that hermeneutically, that's a huge problem for the premillennialists. So, um, uh, so there's every reason to say that this is figurative language, which in the real world means that uh, 
that Satan's power is mightily impacted by the events of Christ's first coming, but it doesn't mean that he can't go about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8, and it doesn't mean that he's not in some sense still the God of this age, but he is a, a God of this age who is deeply restrained uh, in a way that he was not before this, this gospel age. Let's keep working through Revelation chapter 20 and verses 4 through 6. What is the nature of the first and second resurrection in relation with the verses we just discussed? Sure. Well, verses 4 to 6, uh, uh, I uh, always think of, and I think it's probably true to say, uh, are are the heart of darkness (laughs) in terms of the passage. Uh, not, Not in an evil sense, but in the sense of, being the most mysterious language in the passage. I, I really think that there are good explanations for the binding of Satan that are, are clear in the rest of the Bible. And uh, I really think that the binding of Satan is described as the undeceiving of the nations and is talking about something uh, of, uh, and, the, and Satan's loosing allows him to globally deceive the nations and bring them up against of the church for the final war. But, uh, uh, and, and I think the rest of the Bible and the context really helps us with verses one to three and seven to 10, but verses four to six, many people find really difficult. So what I think I'll do is just, I'll go through, I'll go through the passage um, uh, just phrase by phrase and, and tell you what I think the key things are about it, okay? So verse 4 begins, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Now, the interesting thing about those first words in that first sentence in verse 4 is that it raises really pointedly the question in our minds, who? Who sat on thrones? Uh, What thrones are these? Uh, Who are the people to whom judgment was given? Um, And I think that question is deliberately raised by the rhetorical device of verse 4, and, and it prepares us for the response that that uh, the people sitting on thrones to whom judgment is given are the souls of those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Now, um, uh, I think we have to, although it's possible in Scripture, of course, the souls might not refer to disembodied souls. Uh, yet, in parallel passages in the book of Revelation, Revelation 6, where you have the souls under the altar, it's clear that we are talking about disembodied souls. But there's something here in the very verse that I think requires that we say that it's disembodied souls that are sitting on these thrones, because, uh, because of the language, disembodied, the souls of those who had been beheaded. Uh, it's probably not clear to an English reader, but if you look at the word beheaded in in the Greek language here, it's in the perfect tense. And what's the significance of that? Well, a perfect tense suggests that something in the past is not just a past event, but it has present effects into the present, okay? Uh, So when it says he saw the souls of those who had had been beheaded, it really means uh, the most natural way of taking the phrase is that they remain beheaded souls. Of course, if they remain beheaded souls, uh, then they are souls, and they are not, um, and they are they are disembodied souls. They're not people with their bodies because they're beheaded souls. Um, and then uh, I think the other thing we have to say about verse four is that we have to remember again that we're talking about uh, figurative language here. Um, and and we shouldn't get our, we shouldn't get bogged down with questions. Well. Why just those holes that were beheaded? Why not those who were burned at the stake or torn up by beasts? You know, that's that's the really wrong question to ask about this passage. Because again, we have to remind ourselves that the language of this passage is it's apocalyptic and figurative. Uh, there is no literal beast in the real world. The beast is a, fig, a figurative description of anti-Christian civil power and maybe of its last manifestation in a personal antichrist. But the point is, uh, this is figurative language. Uh, The refusal to receive the mark on their forehead or on their hand 
is, is the refusal of Christians in the real world to either think or act like the uh, anti-Christian civil power requires them to. And so, uh, and, and in the real world, the souls of those who have been beheaded, beheaded are all those who suffer for Christ, whether by beheading or martyrdom in some other way, or simply by suffering in life for Christ. Because this is figurative language, and again, has to be got through the gate of translation. And when it is, and, and it is interpreted in light of other passages in the New Testament, uh, like Romans 8 and 2 Timothy 2, we know that the rest of the, teaches, rest of the New Testament teaches that if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. And so that's the meaning of, of, of verse 4. Now, and it says that these people, these souls sitting on thrones, reigned with Christ for a thousand years on those thrones. Now, um, verse 5 is... Uh, is perhaps um, some of the most difficult for people, but I think there are solutions to it. We read here, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now, let's begin with the title given to this vision, the first resurrection. Um, I believe that that language reflects, and again, it has to be interpreted in light of context, in light of more literal passages in the Bible. I think it reflects the language of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul describes uh, the resurrection of Christ as the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits. Uh, and so, in my view, it is the resurrection of Christ that is the first resurrection. And the glory of the souls that were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus is that they join Christ in the glory of his resurrection in heaven. They share in that resurrection, even before the final resurrection of the dead, they share in the glory of his resurrection in the, in the, the blessedness of the intermediate state of believers. And that's the point of verse 4. But then people say... Um, uh, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And a lot of assumptions are made about that phrase that simply can't be substantiated by careful exegesis. Many people assume that this, this statement here in verse 5a means that the rest of the dead do come to life after the thousand years were completed. But the language used here doesn't necessarily imply that at all. Um, this is uh, and the reason it doesn't imply it is that the word until is is made to carry freight that it really doesn't carry in the Greek language or even sometimes in the English language. The way it can be better translated, and there are a number of instances of this this kind of usage of the term until, is that the rest of the dead did not come to life even until uh, the thousand years were completed. The implication is not that they came to life after the thousand years were completed, but, this, but that they never shared in the glory of the first resurrection. Uh, even until the end of the thousand years of Christ's heavenly reign in heaven, they never shared in that glory. They did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. That language does not imply that they did come to life afterwards. Uh, it, we are told that Christ must reign until he puts every enemy under his feet. Does that mean that he ceases to reign after that? Well, it would if we had that kind of wooden uh, understanding of the term until, but it doesn't mean that. We're told in Revelation 17, 17, uh, that the ten horns, the ten kings, give their power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Does this mean they get their power back after that? Of course not. It means they're destroyed with the beast when he's destroyed. And so the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed, simply does not mean and does not say uh, that the rest of the dead come to life after the thousand years. It means they never come to life. That's the implication. And so um, uh, you've assumed in your question, many people do, that the, the passage mentions a second resurrection. I just need to point out that it actually never does. There is no reference to a second resurrection in this passage. Uh, it, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if there were, 
and I can tell you what I think it would be if there is a second resurrection implied. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, the contrast in this passage is not between a first and second resurrection. The contrast between in this passage is between the first resurrection and the second death. Uh, blessed and holy, verse 6, is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God, and Christ will reign with him for a thousand years. So um, if there is a second resurrection, if that's implied here, then it's the physical resurrection of the dead uh, at Christ's second coming of, of, dead, of, of, of believers. But I'm not so sure that that's actually implied by the passage at all. If it is, it means that, and it doesn't affect, uh, uh, it doesn't profoundly affect what I'm saying. Verse 6 is interesting because it contains a lot of language that, in addition to verses 4 and 5, um, kind of um, takes us back uh, to Revelation 2 and 3 and to the promises to the overcomers. Um uh, in in those in Revelation two and three, uh, there are all sorts of promises made to the overcomers that kind of uh, seem to be brought to their fulfillment and fruition, at least part of their fulfillment and fruition, in verses four to six of of Revelation twenty. Uh, the overcomers will not be touched by the second death. The overcomers will be pillars of God, uh, pillars in the temple of God. Uh, and the overcomers will be uh, clothed with white clothing. That's another of the promises to the overcomers. Now, why is all that significant? Well, because the promises of the overcomers uh, are fulfilled, at least preliminarily, in the intermediate state. When are, when are the overcomers given the white robes? Well, in Revelation 6, we're told that the souls under the altar are given those right robes in the intermediate state now in heaven. Um, the uh, promises to the overcomer, uh, one of the promises is that uh, they will uh, eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. But Jesus said to the thief on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. So already the souls of believers are enjoying paradise in the preliminary sense that it's available in the intermediate state. And so uh, all of that points me to the fact that what we have here in verses 4 to 6 of Revelation 20 is the final climactic consummate description of the intermediate state of believers with Christ in heaven uh, during this age before he comes back and they're raised from the dead. Thank you. That was I'm sorry, I went on and gave you a 20-minute well, no, lecture thank there, you. That I? was very helpful, actually, and, and blew my mind a couple of times. Um, one other question—well, not one other. We have more questions. But the next question, um, with the popular book series as well as a, a movie series that was watched by Christians— um, it kind of described the rapture as kind of a dematerializing or a, a poofing of people up into heaven. Um, what would you, and they call it the rapture, what would you say the rapture is? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad you're putting it that way, actually, because I've been asked a number of times, well, do I believe in the rapture? Uh, well, of course, that question is coming out of the dispensational context, and in the sense, of course, that it's taught in dispensationalism, I almost have to answer, no, I don't believe in the rapture, except that I do believe uh, that a rapture is taught in Scripture, uh, but it's not the kind of rapture that dispensationalism teaches or is talked about in the, in the famous movies, okay? So let me... Uh, the key passage here is 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 to 18. It might be good for us just to talk about, walk through that passage for a second, okay? Uh, it reads, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, verse 17 is the key key, uh, passage that speaks of what I would call the rapture, and it's the key passage for dispensationalists too. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, um, in this passage, uh, the word uh, caught up is the Greek prep, uh, the Greek verb arpazo, which means to seize. Um, and I believe, if my memory serves me, and I think it does here, that it's translated in the Latin Vulgate as rapto, or uh, using a verb, uh, one of which forms is rapto, which which means to seize. Okay, and uh, and therefore. Uh, I do think that this language of believers being caught up or seized uh, and uh, caught up into the clouds is biblical language. And and, and so, uh, because it's translated by rapto or something like that in the Latin Vulgate, it's come into our English language as, as being raptured. So, if all you mean by raptured is being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, certainly, uh, this the explicit teaching of Scripture that that happens. But the difference is, and here's what's so important, uh, is what happens then. And here, biblical eschatology and dispensational eschatology are absolutely opposite. Okay, um, because dispensationalism teaches that they meet the Lord in the air, and then they go back to heaven, okay? <laughs> and they have uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb or something for seven years. Um, but the language, uh, but the whole teaching of the Bible, and actually the implication of First Thessalonians 4.17 is exactly the opposite. Because the language here... Uh, doesn't imply that the Lord goes back to heaven when he gets his believers uh, through the resurrection of the dead and through the rapture. The language here is that he keeps on coming. Sometimes in preaching up on this, I say that the application is when Jesus comes back, he's coming back to stay. And that's absolutely true. Now, why do I say that? Well, not only because of the teaching of the rest of Scripture, um, and of the rest of this passage, actually. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we learn that the second coming of Christ actually involves sudden destruction for all unbelievers in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, and, and that the coming of Christ described in this passage is going to bring sudden destruction uh, to all unbelievers and salvation to believers, and there's no room for a seven-year tribulation or any other such nonsense after the coming of Christ in this passage. But there's something else really interesting about the passage. Uh, if you if you read it in the Greek, uh, we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Um, what's really interesting about that language, to meet the Lord in the air, is that the Greek word apontesin used here uh, had a characteristic meaning in the Greek language, especially of Paul's day. And, and, and even more interesting was that a pontesan was used in combination with the Greek word parousia, which, of course, in this very passage is used to describe the second coming of Christ. And, and the way it was used uh, in, in uh, secular Greek uh, uh, Hellenistic civilization was that a, a high Roman official, perhaps even the emperor, was coming to visit a city. The chief citizens of that city would go out to meet him 
and the and the word used uh, was apontesen, and the word used for his arrival at the city was parousia. So the emperor's parousia is about to take place, and the chief citizens of the city go out to greet him and accompany him on the rest of his journey into the city. Now, what's really interesting is that that's exactly way the, the way the word apontison used here is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, it's used, if my memory serves me, and I'm going to check it, it's used only three times in the New Testament. And it's used in Matthew 25, 6, where the, uh, uh, the virgins go out to meet the bridegroom uh, and accompany him back to where they've been waiting at the wedding feast for him to come. And so they go outside the doors of the wedding feast. They go meet the bridegroom. They accompany him as his entourage back to the wedding feast room where they've been waiting. Same thing happens in Acts 28, 15, uh, where the brethren uh, came out to meet Paul and accompany him on the rest of his journey to Rome. They didn't come out to meet Paul and then take him someplace else, like kidnap him so he wouldn't have to go to Rome. No, they came out to meet Paul, and they accompanied him uh, on the rest of his journey into Rome. The brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three ends to meet us. It's the word apontesen. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. But they weren't coming out just to meet him and leave. They were coming out not to meet him and go someplace else. They were coming out to meet him and accompany him on his on the rest of his arrival or his parousia into Rome. And so uh, actually then the language of First Thessalonians 4 uh, couldn't be more contrary in terms of its implications to the rapture in the dispensational sense, although it does teach a kind of rapture in an orthodox sense. Dr. Waldron, we have covered a lot of ground today, and uh, we, I just want to move this conversation devotionally as we've been looking at this doctrine of amillennialism. What are some practical implications to holding to amillennialism, and why is it comforting, and how does it affect our engagement with the world around us? Well, there's so many implications. Um, uh, first of all, um, I want to say that it should teach us that uh, we should have charity for other Orthodox Christians and their systems because we hold with them the great truths of the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the general judgment or, or the judgment to come. But it should also encourage us in the sense that um, uh, as our millennials, we believe that the church is the true Israel of God, that in the church uh, we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that God's great work in the world is going to be accomplished through his church. And the church is at the center of God's purposes in the world. And what encouragement and excitement that should give us uh, and hope it should give us in spite of how Oftentimes in our local churches, uh, we can get discouraged that we need to continue to labor on and pray on for God to bless local churches, because it's in local churches like ours that God's kingdom is coming to the world, that God's kingdom is in some sense resident in the world. Of course, the other thing this does for us is deliver us from being distracted into, into secondary and even meaningless things by uh, the sensationalism of popular prophetic speculation. Uh, it's not the Middle East should, that should attract our attention. Uh, it is what God is doing in and through his church. You know, it's not, uh, it's not what he's doing among the Jews, uh, but what he's doing in his church that should be the focus of our attention. And it'll, it'll keep, our, our millennialism keeps a Christian's views focused in the right direction and I'm focused on the right thing and delivers him from a, a really carnal kind of sensationalism that in the end is really going to disappoint and makes him uh, a, a an optimistic realist with regard to the future of the church in the world and God's work in the church in the world. 
And of course, uh, it focuses our attention uh, uh, on the great uh, hope that we have uh, in the resurrection, the return of Christ, and the fact that God is going to make all things new. Um, and um, Christ is coming back to, yes, destroy the world, but then to remake the world. Um, and, and the end of the story is this. God made the world through his son. God the Father made the world through his son in the beginning. He made it as, and he made it for his son. All things were made through him and for him, Colossians 1 teaches. And Satan is not going to succeed in taking away from the Son of God his inheritance, his birthright. The world was made for him, and he will receive a redeemed world as the result of the travail of his soul. And, and, uh, and so amillennialism, with its focus on a redeemed earth as the home of Christ's people and their eternal inheritance, uh, is really encouraging in terms of the realism with which it allows us to think of our hope and the focus it keeps on on Christ uh, and um, as the redeemer of not just our souls, but of our bodies and of our world. Thank you for that, Dr. Waldron. Um, I'm going to wrap it up with a, a couple of final questions. Um, in your opinion, of course, you've written three books of the subject and on this subject, and we will link to those in the show notes, but where are some other places that people can start to to study eschatology and, and learn more about amillennialism? And then uh, another part to that question is, where are some places that people can, can find your other work outside of books and things like that? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, besides my three books, you mentioned two of them. The, uh, the, the one that didn't get explicit mentioned is more of the end times made simple. Uh, actually, uh, the first one, end times made simple, is also in Spanish, and the other two will be in Spanish before too long. Um, but the books that were really helpful to me um, uh, is Anthony Hookema's Bible in the Future, I also like Riddlebarger's books on the uh, on amillennialism and his book on the Antichrist as well. I think is is pretty good, and uh, and of course Sam Storms. Uh, I, I appreciate. I believe it's Kingdom his, Come. His work. What's the title of it? Kingdom Come, maybe. Yeah, and uh, I appreciate Storms' work. I think we're on the same wavelength. Um, uh. I'm, I'm probably less of a preterist in my interpretation of some passages than either Storms or Riddlebarger. Uh, I don't think uh, that we need to say in any sense that the second coming of Christ in Matthew 24 took place at the destruction of Jerusalem, although it may be in some places the destruction of a kind of, the Scripture teaches a kind, a kind of coming of Christ occurred at the destruction of Jerusalem, I really don't think that's necessary at all in Matthew 24. Um, so I, I appreciate the books of those men. Those are some of, I think, the best, soundest, most balanced books that are available. In terms of my own my own teaching, uh, of course, I, I teach two courses on eschatology uh, for our seminary, and uh, they're available to audit uh, if you're not a regular student. Uh, eschatology, the basics. And then uh, uh, an advanced course, uh, which includes a lot of my uh, rebuttals and critiques of Waymeyer and Horner and some of the other other. Yeah, and we'll, we'll link. Go ahead, Austin. Well, Doctor Waldron. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, I'm sure Brother Jimmy was going to mention. We'll link all of those books in the show notes. And Doctor Waldron, we're so thankful that you came on today and took all of this time to answer our questions. We appreciate you and your ministry at CBTS and uh, Grace Reformed Baptist Church. So thank you for coming on today. It's been a delight, brothers. Good talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.